Welcome to Practical Christian Living. When they finished scourging him, they shoved a crown of thorns on his head. They put the royal robe back on his back. So now he looked like this, this beaten, humbled king. And they brought him back out. And we know that in John, Pilate said, Behold the man. I think this was his last ditch effort to save Jesus. Hearing the details of the crucifixion and all the brutality of the abuse and betrayal Jesus suffered is so difficult for us to hear, but so necessary because we need to be reminded it is the very essence of our salvation. The price Jesus paid for us is the very reason we can totally blow it, yet be forgiven and covered by His grace. With more on Jesus and His appointment with Pontius Pilate in Matthew chapter 27, here's Robert Furrow. When we find in verse uh, Matthew 27 verses 1 and 2 that they bring Jesus before Pilate. It says, When morning came, the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put Him to death. And when they had bound Him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. That's the end of the Roman trial, and they bring him to Pontius Pilate. John 18 tells us that they brought him to his praetorium. You've heard of that before, right? So a praetorium was the tent or the, or the living quarters of the highest ranking office, Roman officer that was with a group of, of soldiers. So if you were a centurion and you just camped with your soldiers, your tent would be the praetorium. If another commander came who was higher in rank than you, then that would be the praetorium. The highest ranking officer always had the praetorium. And so it says that Jesus was taken to the praetorium. So we know that he was in Jerusalem and he's the governor. He's the highest ranking Roman official that's there. So he's the governor. And right away in John 18, 28, it says that the Jewish leaders, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the high priest and the chief priest. They bring Jesus with them and they refused to go into the praetorium. John 18, 28. That couldn't have gone over well with Pilate. They bring a prisoner in, and, and he's like, bring him in, and they're like, no, we won't go in. Why not? Because it would defile them so that they could not take part, they would be unclean, and they couldn't take part in the Passover happening the next day. What a horrible thing for them to be. They're, they're breaking at least two commandments. Bearing false witness, which I think is one of the worst of the commandments that you can break, that you slander someone, you're treating someone poorly, and maybe the worst one you can break, murder. They're trying to get Jesus murdered. So they're like, we're trying to break the commandment of murder and false testimony, or bearing false witness, but we don't want to go into your house because we'll be defiled. I don't think that Pilate could have taken that well. And so Luke 23, 4 says, Pilate came out of the praetorium and asked what the charges were that were brought against the prisoner. John 18, we're told that they said this, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. I think that Caiaphas thought, I'm here, the chief priests are here, the Sanhedrin is here, we're, we're the most powerful group of people in, in all of Israel, and if we didn't bring in an evildoer, if he was an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you, so just crucify him. If, if there's a prosecutor here, maybe there is, what would happen to you if you took that argument to a judge? Judge, if they weren't, if they weren't a bad person, I, I wouldn't bring them to you. And so the same thing was true with, with, with Pilate. And so Pilate pushed them to give accusations. So here was their accusations. There were three of them. Number one, he is perverting the nation. 
What they meant by that is that he was destroying the nation of Israel. Israel was cooking along well, and he was stirring things up. Number two, he was forbidding to pay taxes, which was an outright lie. They had tried to trap him and get him to say something like that, but Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God's. Number three, they said, he says he's the Christ, the Messiah, and a king. That's a lie. Although Jesus affirmed that he was a king and affirmed that he was the Messiah, Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't show you this, but my father in heaven. Caiaphas said, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? He said, it is as you say, but he never said he was. And there's a reason for this. Because if Jesus stood up and said, I am the Messiah, I am God in the flesh, people wouldn't believe him. Why? Because crazy people say things like that. At best, you have delusions of grandeur. At best. At worst, you're crazy. So you have to do what you do and let other people recognize it, and then you can affirm it. And that's what Jesus did in his ministry. He affirmed it to the woman at the well. He affirmed it to the man who was blind, who was healed and sent to the pool of Siloam. He affirmed it to his disciples. He affirmed it to the council. He affirmed that he was the Messiah, but he never said, I'm the king. All right? So these are all false. So then we find in verse, we jump ahead here. Let me see here. Um, Pilate comes out to greet them. They make their accusations. And the main accusation is he's king of the Jews. That's the one that Pilate picks up on. All those accusations, verse 11, we jump ahead of Judas, okay? Because that's the next few verses. We go to verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Out of all these accusations, the only one he cared about was king of the Jews. Because that would be sedition. That would be treason. I'm the king. Jesus said to him, it is as you say. So Jesus is out in front of them. He's been accused, all these things. And now he tells Pilate, yeah, I'm, I'm the king. I, I, it's as you say. And while he was being accused, the chief priest and the elders, he answered nothing. Now note that Jesus was silent during the accusations. He answered questions from Pilate and from the high priest, but he was silent during accusations. So Pilate goes back into the praetorium and he brings Jesus in with him. And if you turn to John 18, verse 33, we get the conversation that he had with Jesus inside of the praetorium. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again. This is John 18, 33. Called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He asked him now in semi-private what he asked him out in front of everybody. Jesus answered and said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Now, you've got to understand that before the Romans, the Greeks controlled the world. And Greek philosophy had beaten the idea of truth to death. You know, today there's the argument of whether or not truth is subjective or objective. It's something people like to talk about in, in universities, the University of Arizona. They like to talk about it. Well, truth is subjective, meaning you have your own truth. 
Well, in reality, truth is not subjective, it's objective. There's the old joke that if a professor tells you that truth is subjective, punch him in the face and see what he says. That's not saying do it, it's a joke, okay? And so when the professor says, I'm calling the police because that was wrong, you can go, truth is, is subjective, it's my truth, my truth is it's not wrong. That, this argument has been around since the Greek philosophers well before Pilate. So when Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, Pilate blew it off. Pilate said, what is truth? Okay, this has been an argument forever. What is truth? And as he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him. This is the first of three times he says, I find no fault in him. And so again, he questions now, the accusers. In, in Matthew 27, 13, Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify of you against me? He's taking Jesus back out again now. And they've accused him. He says, don't you hear these accusations? But he answered him not a word. So the governor marveled greatly. Now we get another reason why Pilate might have wanted to let him go. He marveled greatly because Jesus said nothing when he was going to be crucified. I wonder if ever Pilate had anybody that kept silent when they were on trial and could be crucified. Romans crucified all kinds of people. They crucified them regularly. In 70 AD, when they took Jerusalem, it was said that they crucified so many people, they ran out of wood, Josephus tells us. And, and anybody being crucified saw it, knew what it was, would just go, take any advantage to try to get set free. And he marvels at Jesus. And then he turns around and he starts to question the accusers again. Why have you brought him here? And what's the real reason? And they say, well, he came from Galilee. And as soon as Pilate hears Galilee, he goes, well, that's Herod Antipas's region. Herod Antipas is the one who killed John the Baptist. And he's in town. He's just up the street. So he sends Jesus from his praetorium to Herod. Now, I won't take time to read all of that today. But just to tell you this, Jesus would have nothing to say to Herod. The Bible tells us Herod was happy to see him because he wanted him to do a miracle. He was like, come on in, do a miracle for me. Like he was a magician. Look at this coin, you know. And Jesus was just silent before him. And I think and what we'll talk in the ending in our application, we'll talk about why Jesus was silent before, before Herod. I think one of the reasons is, this is the guy that murdered John the Baptist. And Jesus just won't say a word to him. And so Herod's men beat him and they put a royal robe on his back and send him back to Pilate. And when Pilate sees him with the royal robe, he gets a kick out of it. And the Bible says that from that day on, Pilate and Herod were friends. Before that, they had enmity between them. But from that day forward, they were friends. So Pilate thought, that's good. This guy says, you know, he's king of the Jew, and he sends him back with this purple robe on him. So now he figures, I need to do something. I want to get rid of this guy. And there's this custom, verse uh, 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude of prisoner who they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. We're told he was a murderer and he'd been involved in a rebellion. We're also told he was a thief. And at that time, the notorious prisoner called Barabbas, meaning everybody knew about him, right? Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? The oldest manuscripts put his name as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was not an uncommon name in their day. The name is the Hebrew name Joshua. There are a lot of guys named Joshua. This is Joshua Barabbas. 
And Jesus literally took the place on the cross of Barabbas. Joshua took the place of Joshua. The sinless Joshua took the place of the sinful Joshua. And there's a lot that we could, we could talk about, the pictures that come from that. But it says in verse 18 that he gave him this choice for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Again, we get the, the narrative of the Bible tells us why he wants to let Jesus go. He knows it's out of envy that they've handed him over. And so then verse 19, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So another reason why he would want to let him go, his wife sends and says, you know, he was probably woken up early. The chief priest wants to see if they've got a prisoner. His wife says, I've had dreams this morning about him. Don't have anything to do with him. Verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas to destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That was a mocking statement. You guys say he's called the Christ. What do you want me to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that the tumult was rising, what had happened to Pilate three different times? There were three different riots. This is, a riot. this is turning into a riot. A tumult is rising. He was reprimanded by the emperor last time there was a tumult. So when he saw that a tumult was rising, he took hot water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, of this just person, he says. You see to it. He calls him innocent and says, I'm not crucifying him. But their power to execute people had been taken from them, or taken away from them in 11 AD. And so they, so all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. We know from one of the other passages, they tell him, we can't because we can't execute people. So then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, John tells us more about that last section. It says that he handed Jesus over to his soldiers. They took him and they scourged him. The Bible tells us by his stripes we are healed, that in heaven there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, and God heals people now sometimes. And so all of that was from the scourging of Jesus. Some people didn't survive it. When they finished scourging him, they shoved a crown of thorns on his head. They put the royal robe back on his back. So now he looked like this, this beaten, humbled king. And they brought him back out. And we know that, and John, Pilate said, behold the man. I think this was his last ditch effort to save Jesus. He, he wants the crowds to go, wow, look how bad he looks. The Bible tells us he was beaten so severely, Isaiah 53, he no longer looked like a man. His beard had been pulled from his face. He was beaten by the, the Jewish soldiers. He was beaten by the Roman soldiers. He was beaten by the Sanhedrin, remember, when they condemned him in the middle of the night. He was scourged and then beaten by these Roman soldiers. And behold the man, and they cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so he hands him over to be crucified. And we pick that up again in verse 26. 
Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged him, he delivered him to be crucified. Now I have three points in conclusion. Number one, I think it becomes evident in this case that it's no different than the historical accounts of Judas. Again, this isn't us. We didn't, we're not the ones who chose this as the mark as to whether or not the Bible is reliable. They're the ones who have chosen Pilate. And it becomes evident that the historical accounts of Pilate fighting with the religious leaders continues on with Jesus. There's not a contrast here. He doesn't look like a different person. He looks like the same person that carries it through. And so we'll move from there that in this particular case, the Bible looks reliable. More than that, archaeology proves Pilate was in existence, and the more archaeology discovers things, the more we know that the Bible is reliable. And if the Bible is reliable archaeologically, if the Bible is reliable historically, we keep finding historical accounts of these men the Bible talks about that critics have denied for years. If the Bible is historical geographically, the Bible tells us all the places that these things happen and we can visit them today. You can go to Israel and you can travel all around the land. You can visit the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. You can visit Mount Gerizim and Mount Eber where they ratified the covenant of God in the Old Testament. You can go to Jerusalem. You can see all of these places. You can see the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go all of these places. If it's accurate archaeologically, geographically, historically, and prophetically, the Bible tells the future then certainly it's accurate spiritually. And since the Bible tells you that you are condemned in your sin, Jesus said, he who does not receive the Son is condemned already. You're not condemned because you don't receive Jesus. You're already condemned, and you need to receive Jesus that your judgment could be taken upon you. Which brings me to my second point. And that is that we just watched today Jesus taking your place in judgment. The Bible says one day the books will be opened and men will have to answer for themselves and what they've done. But the Bible also says that you and I have been set free from judgment. I will not be judged and neither will you. And what we just read and considered is Jesus taking your place. You should stand and have your accusations read out loud for you. I should stand and have my accusations read out loud for me and feel the shame and the guilt of the things that I've done. But all of that has been removed, and I have been forgiven, and I have been set free from judgment. And so the Bible says you and I will not be judged. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Number three, why was he silent? And what can we learn from that? I think Jesus was silent for two reasons. Number one, he said earlier, don't cast your pearls before swine. And I think standing before Herod, I think he thought he was a pig. No, that's not what I think. He wasn't calling people pigs. He also said, don't throw your money before dogs. He wasn't calling people dogs. He was saying a dog doesn't understand the value of money and a pig doesn't understand the value of pearls. And when you are talking to someone who is hostile to the gospel, don't take something as precious as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus on the cross, and throw it out to people who don't see its value. You don't throw pearls before swine. You don't give your dog a bundle of $20 bills. What will your dog do with that? Find pieces of paper everywhere, right? All over your house. He'll chew it up till there's nothing left. And so you and I, when we're sharing our faith, sometimes we run into hostile people. And hostile is okay. 
But when they become disrespectful towards the things of Jesus and the things that are very holy, then it's time for us to back away and pray for them. We're not giving up on them. We still want to see them come to Christ. But we don't want to take the things that are holy and give them to the swine or the dogs, just meaning they don't see the value in it. And so we have to evaluate that when someone mocks Jesus and takes the things that we tell them about Christ and mocks them. When I was a youth pastor in Albuquerque, I had a kid come who wanted to be a Satanist. I don't, he never became a Satanist, but he wanted to be a Satanist. And he found a couple guys that were Satanists. They told him to go to church and find out what the church was teaching so that they could pervert it in their little ceremonies. These were a group of people who were not involved in Satanism. They wanted to be Satanists, so this was their attempt in it. When the kid came to our youth group, he got saved. And he told me a little bit later, the reason I came in the first time was to find out things that we could pervert in our Satanist services. So that's what Satan really wants to do. So we want to be silent. At certain times, we need to be silent. Someone says, share your faith to everybody. Well, you know, sometimes. No. no. As I said, hostile is okay. But when they are, are wanting just to mock it and make fun of it, then back away and pray for them. The second reason Jesus was silent was in accusations. He did not answer a word when they accused him. He talked to Pilate, but under the accusations, he didn't answer him. He didn't talk to Herod, I think, because he saw him as someone who didn't value spiritual things. He talked to the Sanhedrin when they asked him questions, but when they accused him, he didn't answer. He was silent before them during the accusations as well. And I think that this helps us because the Bible says, if you defend yourself, there's a proverb, if you defend yourself, then God will not defend you. It's as if God says, when you start to defend yourself, God says, well, you got it. I'm going to back away. I would like to have God defend me. Some of you guys here don't have social media accounts. Good for you. I have them in spades. I got a bunch of them because we remember ministering through them. So on one of the social media accounts, somebody wrote something that, well, that was just unfair. They wrote something about here that had been done recently and they just took it too far and it was unfair. And I, and I wanted to respond. And you know, the first thing I thought about right now, I'll tell them this, I'll tell them that, I'll tell them this, I'll tell them that. And this is all in the public square, right? Because there's people reading that post and they would read my response. So I'm like, oh, getting it all ready. I'm going to get them here, get them there, get them here, get them there. But I'm also studying that Jesus didn't say anything when he was accused. And so I thought, you know what? I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to follow with Jesus. And, and this may be a good thing for us to remember that God will take care of us. He's our defender. God knows the truth. God's able to, to defend us. And I want God to be that defender. And maybe especially on social media, had I responded, they would have responded back. I would have responded again. They would have responded back. And it would have turned into this whole thing. And then people from the church would have piled in to defend me or maybe to attack me. I don't know. It could have been worse, right? It would turn into this whole thing. So I think the last thing that we can learn from this is that when we are falsely accused, it hurts. It hurts and it's hard because you are feeling misunderstood, right? But if we can just be quiet about it and let God take care of it, I think it's always going to be better and we can learn that from Christ. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we could spend time today looking at your word. It is so powerful and it really speaks to us about what you want from us and how you want us to live. Father, we pray now that you would, you would give us the boldness to take the next step in our relationship with you. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.